Will Jeremy Corbyn launch a new political party? Why has Nigel Farage become a sudden advocate for people who found themselves on the wrong side of border control? And how many pictures has Peter Mandelson had taken with Jeffrey Epstein? These are just three of the many stories we are going to discuss on tonight's show, as well as the breaking news, which is the revelation of an email from Boris Johnson's private secretary inviting 100 or so people to a lockdown garden party. I'm joined all evening by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm very good. I'm kind of offended I didn't get invited to this lockdown garden party. There was 100 people on the list and one of them couldn't have been me. We need to get into that section of the lobby where you get invited to these nice things because I am sick and tired of it. I want to go to some illegal parties. The parties I go to are just so dull and legal. First story. Jeremy Corbyn is a Labour member and an MP, but he's still not a Labour MP. The ongoing limbo caused by Keir Starmer's decision to remove the the whip from Corbyn leaves it an open question who will be competing and under what banners in Corbyn's constituency at the next election. And speculation was sent into overdrive this weekend. That's thanks to a story in The Telegraph, the headline of which reads, Jeremy Corbyn could establish own party as hopes fade of being reinstated as Labour MP. The subheading... Former Labour leader is being urged to upgrade his charity and run under its banner at the next election. There are a lot of fairly vague claims in in that headline. He could establish his own party and he's being urged to create a new party. Let's look at the details of the piece. So Tony Diver and Harry York report that the former Labour leader has been urged by many in his inner circle, including his wife, Laura Alvarez, to upgrade his charity, the Peace and Justice Project, into a political party and run under its banner at the next election. They later go on to say, after the failure of some back-channel negotiations on his return, the former leader has told friends he does not now believe he will have the whip reinstated before the next election and will be forced to stand in Islington North as an independent candidate unless he establishes his own party. They continue, a close ally of the former leader did not deny the claims He was considering setting up a new party, but insisted there had been no advanced discussions, while a spokesman for the Peace and Justice Project said there were as yet no plans for it to become a party. The Telegraph also speculates that other socialist campaign group MPs might consider joining a breakaway party, though suggests neither John McDonnell nor Diane Abbott would be interested. Ash. How seriously should we take these reports? Do you think that that Jeremy Corbyn really is planning to launch a new party in Islington North? I don't think there's anything particularly new in these reports. If you look through the Telegraph piece, it restates an awful lot of what we know already. Number one is that there is no indication that Jeremy Corbyn will be allowed to rejoin the Parliamentary Labour Party, despite being a Labour member and having been elected as a Labour MP and still being an MP and not indicating that he's got a particular desire to step down at the next election. Two, you do have this Peace and Justice Project, which so far has been mostly internationalist in its outlook and its concerns, but it seems like a vehicle which could be converted into a political party with not too much difficulty. And three, you've got this aspect of Jeremy Corbyn not necessarily wanting to step down at the next election and being put in a bit of a bind, which is, do you kowtow? 
to the desires of not just the Labour right, but a Labour leadership which has acted in ways which many allies of Corbyn consider to be very underhand in getting him to write all sorts of apologies and then kind of rescinding the promise of readmission to the PLP? Or do you stand up and fight and say, hang on, it's not fair on my constituents to be rid of the MP that they voted into power simply because of machinations at the top of the party. So I don't think that there's anything new in these reports. What it does is restate what we already know in perhaps a more salacious or intriguing way and put at the front of everyone's mind the fact of a general election, either in 2023 or perhaps even earlier, and raise these questions of what Corbyn will do. But I don't think that there's anything particularly new or reliable in this report. So we're going to move quickly on to whether or not it would be a good idea if he were, in fact, considering this. A couple of super chats, first of all, to kick us off. Julie Batterson, seriously wrong time for Corbyn or Sultana. Let a few years go by. Starmer will bugger it up. Then it will be their time. And Saul with a tenor says there are lots of good reasons for members to leave Labour, but leaving to set up a new party to compete electorally would be a terrible waste of effort. Very interesting comments, both, I think, sort of pushing in a similar direction. My position on the question of would it be a good idea, I think what's difficult about this is I can see how Corbyn standing as an independent, if he were not to be readmitted into the Labour Party, would make a lot of sense, and I'd want him to win. The problem is, the argument people have made is that left-wing activists from across the country would flood in to campaign for him, but actually, most people would be in a bit of a bind, because... John McDonnell, Diane Abbott, they couldn't campaign for Corbyn to be an MP and also stand themselves as a Labour MP because it's a, you know, you get an automatic expulsion if you campaign for someone who is standing against a Labour Party candidate. And presumably, if Corbyn stood as an independent in Islington North, he would be standing against a Labour Party candidate. So it's a very difficult situation because whatever happens, it's going to divide the left, I think. I don't think there is any option where the left comes out of this intact if there were to be. Um, let alone a, a breakaway party, even Corbyn standing as an independent, I think could be pretty difficult to manage. Ash, what's your take on this in terms of, you know, regardless of whether or not he is considering it, what do you think Corbyn should do at the next election if he's not given back the whip as a Labour MP? Let's have a look at, quite seriously, the appeal of this idea. One is that so far the argument of stay in the party and fight and that coming from various think fluencers and left-wing leaders both inside the party and the wider commentariat, it isn't really a coherent program. Stay and fight to do what? There isn't exactly a program of the left making huge gains within CLPs. There are, of course, some exceptions to this, Lewisham and Deptford being one. But overall, this has been a story of left-wing disempowerment across the party. There hasn't been a huge impact in terms of policy either. What have we seen since 2020? It's been Keir Starmer systematically rowing back on all of his 10 pledges. He stood the Labour leadership as Corbyn in a suit, and he may as well leave it as a less charismatic and jowlier David Miliband. There's also the matter of, I think, that there is an emotive argument here, which is one about pride and self-respect. If you've been treated like absolute garbage by some of the worst people in politics, by worst, I don't mean morally the worst, just in terms of vibes, absolutely rancid. If you've been treated this way, 
by the right of your party, by, you know, the people in Lotto. There are a lot of people, not just in terms of Corbyn's inner circle, but in terms of the left-wing current membership of the Labour Party and the former membership going, well, I really want to give you a bloody nose. I want to show you that I'm not disposable. So I do really see the appeal from that angle. In terms of whether or not it can succeed, well, it's a really mixed bag. Of course, Ken Livingstone won the London mayoralty as an independent. You also have the successes of George Galloway and other MPs who who were able to sort of break away from the Labour fold and, and still establish your name for themselves and have some electoral successes. Jeremy Corbyn, I think, is a unique case in terms of both his name recognition, the national platform, and the fact that he has been a constituency MP for decades and has very, very deep links with the local community. This isn't just the case of someone who is big on a national platform being parachuted into an area where they have no familiarity. This would be Corbyn speaking to a constituency which has renewed their faith with him time and time again. The reasons why I'm sceptical are for the ones that you've you've outlined in terms of this causing a big split in terms of left-wing MPs. What would John McDonnell and Diane Abbott be forced to do? And also, I worry a bit about a left which is governed by the disposition of one more time. I think what has happened to Jeremy Corbyn is atrocious. I think it is one of the most vicious and calculating acts of political malice I've seen in my lifetime. But I worry about a left which is still relitigating 2019-2020 and doesn't have one eye on the future. I think Jeremy Corbyn deserves to remain being the Islington North MP in the next general election. I think that whether that means standing as an independent or setting up a new party, those are those are both avenues that I can see the wisdom of. But I worry about it being a focus for the left to the exclusion of other forms of political organisation and action. I'm almost making my mind up listening to you now because I'm very much sitting on the fence on this. I think probably where I sit on this is that a new party, Change UK style, would probably be a godsend to Keir Starmer because just like with Change UK, it will take out many of his opponents from having institutional positions within the Labour Party. So if there are a bunch of half the socialist campaign group, so that's the sort of 30 or so MPs who sort of identify on the left of the party, if half of those were to join some breakaway, which I doubt many of them would win their seats, potentially Jeremy Corbyn as an independent might do because for, for all of the reasons you've said there, Ash. But I think if, if you created a, a brand new party, the Green Party already exists. It's not clear that there is massive space in terms of electoral competition. So I think you could see it being sort of the self-expulsion of a bunch of people on the left in Labour who do have institutional power, which is essentially the left-wing MPs. So I think that probably would be a mistake. I'm sort of reconsidering actually Corbyn standing as an independent because I suppose my position on stay and fight, I think you're right, Ash, which is that... Stay, obviously, if you are staying and fighting, I have absolute respect for you. I think it's a very good use of your time. At the same time, I can see why staying and fighting isn't the most attractive proposition for many people, especially as lots of people are getting kicked out. You might try and stay and fight, but if you got kicked out, there's nothing you can do about it. I'm more of the stay and wait disposition, which is to say, unless you get kicked out, you might as well stay. You might as well keep paying your low subs, but don't put too much of your energy into it. And then stay so that the next time there is an opportunity where the left have a chance at winning some internal election or even the leadership or whatever, that's when you can re-engage when it seems as if 
your your activities will be rewarded more than they are being rewarded right now. And in that scenario, actually, going to campaign for Jeremy Corbyn as an independent wouldn't that matter that much because staying and waiting, you're looking at this as a five to ten year time frame. Corbyn gets elected as a as an independent MP. It's five years till the next general election anyway. So I think, yeah, stand as an independent and then I don't think any sitting MPs will back him, which I think is understandable. I also don't think they'll speak out against him, but probably there will be a lot of left-wing activists going to campaign for him. You know, a fair number of celebrities or people who have some sort of status. I think it could be a very interesting campaign were it to happen. Um, so I think standing as an independent, yes. Separate party, no. Ash, are you on a similar page to me? I yeah, I'm I'm essentially on the fence. I'm I'm both skeptical and I can also see the reasons for it. I think my my overriding emotion is one of fear of the left being in a position which is actually really useful for Keir Starmer and his allies, which is just constantly locked in to the betrayal that took place between 2017 and 2020. That's a really useful and unproductive place to be. And I completely see why that takes up so much political space, so much emotional space. But I think also Jeremy Corbyn would agree that the challenges of the present and the future aren't the same as the ones of 2017 and 2020. I also would add that often what can determine the success or failure of a once party MP being able to make it as an independent or with their own party can also depend on what the picture is like within local government and the local party as well. And I don't know very much about the composition of Islington Council. I don't know very much about the composition of the Islington North CLP. But depending on how much support Jeremy Corbyn is able to take with him, that can make all the difference in terms of running a really good local campaign, which can get an independent over the line in a general election. Joe Skeeping tweets on the hashtag TiskySour. UKIP highlights that first-past-the-post can be used by new parties to exert significant leverage over the political system without winning seats. A very important point. So if, if it were to be the case that this hypothetical new left-wing party were able to take 10 to 20% in certain key seats, and obviously that, that would be significant. Potentially that could move Labour policy. You know, in the same way that UKIP moved conservative policy, it's a possibility. Matt Carberry of a fiber, if he establishes a party, it has to be properly utopian. No point throwing your hat into first past the post, but as a beacon for raising ultra-left causes, yes. Um, interesting. So could it... I suppose what I'd say to that is, if you're putting forward ultra-left causes, you need something to show for it because the whole, the, one of the points of standing in elections is people have to take you seriously if you do well in them. Right. If, if you if you stand in an election giving all of these ultra-left ideas or whatever, and then you don't get many votes, it's not going to be that successful to that end. So, for example, as much as I think they're an interesting project, like the Northern Independence Party, they stood in Hartlepool to sort of get their ideas across, but then when they got 200 or so votes, that didn't give people a reason to take those ideas seriously. So you, you have to be fairly confident you're going to do quite well in those elections for, for it to work as, you know, a soapbox proposition whereby you're, you're, you're propagating your ideology. Ricochet tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour. Michael, if you are staying and waiting, what are you waiting for? And what's the time frame? Do you expect ordinary people to wait? Very interesting question. I think the time frame is five to 10 years, frankly. Um, maybe more. I mean, if you think about it, Corbyn, John McDonnell, Diane Abbott, they were essentially staying and waiting for quite a while. I mean, they were, they were active, you know, they were part of 
extra parliamentary movements, leading the Stop the War campaign, etc. I'm not saying just wait and do nothing else. I'm saying keep your membership, keep paying those subs if you can afford it, and uh, you know they don't rock it up too much. And that means that you can vote in in those key moments. If if there is another critical juncture where members do have a chance to shift the direction of the party, because next time there is a leadership election or something, it's going to be much easier for the bureaucracy to block new people joining than it is for them to kick people out on on mass. So they want you to leave. Is is my theory here? They being the the Labour right. If Corbyn decides to stand as an independent in the next general election, Starmer's team have apparently found a political heavyweight to take him on in Islington North. It's Mary Cree. Now, you might recognise Cree as briefly being a candidate in the 2015 leadership election. She didn't stay in that race long and struggled to carve out any distinct positions whatsoever. She did, however, launch her campaign in an unusual place. But I've chosen to launch my leadership bid in the Daily Mail because that's exactly the sort of reader that Labour has lost. And I think across the country, people trust us to run their local councils. They trust us to run their local services. But when they came to the ballot box, they wouldn't um, trust us to run the Would government. Would you agree with the Daily Mail, the sort of journalism it does? Well, um, I don't want to get into the, the different well, types of journalism. I mean, you know, they, they've got a very big website. Everybody has a little look but, at the sidebar you know, of shame. They're very aggressive and the sidebar of shame and all that. A, a lot of people in the Labour movement would say that that's not the sort of thing a socialist uh, should be supporting. Labour must have no no-go areas. We have to reach out to every corner and every community of this country. And that doesn't mean turning our backs on, on large numbers of people who want to know what the Labour Party stands for and, and actually are interested in our vision of how we well, can combine I mean, if something is racist or sexist or something like that, I mean, surely you would come apart with, so I don't want to be associated with that. Well, um, th there have been well-documented issues with the Daily Mail in the past, but I think what we have to do is unite around a common vision on how we can marry Labour's traditional um, speaking up for public services, our NHS, all, the BBC, all the things that are going yeah. to change under this Conservative government, but also talk about the, the economy, talk about aspiration and talk about how we can have compassion in public life as well. Now, it tells you a lot about someone's political acumen if they launch a campaign to win over Labour members by writing a comment piece in the Daily Mail. I don't need to tell you that Labour members do not read the Daily Mail. You might as well launch your campaign in the New York Times. It might as well be a bunch of Americans reading this. No one who reads the Daily Mail is voting in a Labour leadership election. That's probably why she didn't do very well, why she had to drop out quite early. Now, the possibility of Mary Cray standing in Islington North was first touted in the Mail on Sunday. They report the following. Moderates are looking to Corbyn critics who crashed to defeat, thanks to Jeremy, to take revenge by standing as the official Labour candidate. The Mail on Sunday understands that they include former Islington councillor Mary Cray, who angrily confronted Mr Corbyn shortly after she lost her Wakefield seat as part of the Tories' conquest of Labour's Red Wall. Ms Cray was filmed challenging the then leader in Portcullis House at Westminster after seeing him pose for photographers with young people as she was clearing out her office. So the Daily Mail are suggesting it could be Mary Cray or another woman who lost a red wall seat in 2019 who will stand against Corbyn. Interesting here, I thought one of the reasons why Labour was supposed to have lost the red wall is because they, you know, they treated those constituencies as disposable, somewhere where you might just pop in and out of. Now they're suggesting that 
the people who lost those seats should now just come and stand in Islington North. Mary Cray was a councillor in Islington before, so she, she popped to Wakefield to represent them for a while. Now she's going to come back to Islington North to take on Jeremy Corbyn. That is really the vision of someone committed to winning back those seats in post-industrial England. Can I just say that that interview between Adam Bolton and Mary Cray was TV gold because in no other party in the British political system do you see that perfect combination of utter vacuousness for regarding a plan that you yourself came up with. All right. It was her <laughs> idea, her idea to launch the campaign in the Daily Mail. And when asked the most basic of questions, completely founded, it's like, sis, you brought this up. Nobody else did. You boasted about this. You think you would have a compelling answer. I mean, Jesus Christ, I really wish I could be a political consultant to some of these idiots on the Labour right. Because I'm here. I completely disagree with the tactic, both morally and strategically. And I was just here going, you know, you should just say that writing for the Daily Mail isn't an endorsement of their positions and you want to be heard by unusual audiences. That's it. That's all you have to say. Except she looked like a goose who was challenged to do algebra. Right. It was just completely, oh my God. And I, and, and I think that, again, like that, what you put as a lack of political acuity also applies in this case, which is you've got people who lost red wall seats then coming to the evil metropole to say, let me have a, another go. The fact is, is that Jeremy Corbyn is a very good constituency MP. People who disagreed with him vociferously. Even Theresa May has said, look, there's no doubt in his devotion to his constituents. He's not a parachute candidate. He's someone who has got very deep links to the constituency built up over many decades. And you are going to be hard pressed to find somebody who's going to want to go up against him. The other thing in terms of the relationship between Jeremy Corbyn and his constituency is that still after everything, after all the attacks in the press, after all the attacks from his own party, he is still very well regarded by his constituents. There were Vox Pops being done by, I think it was ITV, on the day that he had the whip removed. And they were really going around in Islington North looking for somebody to slag him off. And, and they simply couldn't find anybody. One of the people who was interviewed said, this is Corbyn town. You know, this is Corbyn country. I don't know what you're doing around here looking for a negative news line. And I think that one of the perverse results of this onslaught of ne negative coverage, uh, smears and attacks has been to make people in his constituency feel quite protective over him because Islington North is a very different demographic picture from Islington South. There is a lot of deprivation. There is a lot of poverty. Jeremy Corbyn has always been known as somebody with an open door for everyone and who will fight for people who experience the sharp end of austerity or have problems with their immigration status or problems with their council housing. He's the man that people call. So I think that it would be a mistake to invite somebody to stand in the seat who, one, didn't particularly distinguish themselves as a constituency MP far away from the place that they would be standing in, and two, has sort of made themselves distinctive by being a bit of a Corbyn hater. You're standing in a constituency that still quite likes him. So I think that that would be a plan that could backfire. But, you know, I just, also there's a part of me that wants to see more of her on TV. I want more of that Adam Bolton interview. Sis, go on, give me nothing. 
Oh my God, I would love to host the Navarro Media, Jeremy Corbyn versus Mary Cray hostings. That'd be sick. I want him to be let back into the party and stand as a Labour MP, but him standing as an independent would definitely be interesting. I think both myself and Ash think the whole new party, you know, Change UK, I, I'm not sure how far off it would be from that failed experiment. We're in a first-past-the-post system, very, very diff- difficult to, to make splinter parties and have impact. Although the UKIP example that came up in the comments is an interesting one. Next story, also related. A recent piece in the Sunday Times has described Keir Starmer's team as buoyant, with Labour continuing to enjoy a sustained lead over the Tories in the polls. Keir's blooming, but now he needs hard cash. You can see, though, the problem there. In that headline, the party is short of funds. Tim Shipman writes... The large fly in the ointment, sources inside and outside Starmer's inner circle say, is that the party is on the verge of bankruptcy and fearful of court cases brought by former employees who claim discrimination during Corbyn's tenure. That's true, a source close to Starmer said. Another advisor said, there would be some advantages to declaring bankruptcy. You could start a new organisation with a new membership. But if you did that, the Tories would just run ads saying, you ran your own party into the ground, you can't be trusted with public money. One suggestion is that the membership has fallen to just over 400,000. The figures I've seen suggest we've lost well over 100,000 members, and most of those were the people who knocked on doors. That's also millions of pounds no longer coming in, a source said. Ash, how big a problem do you think this is? I mean, it's kind of funny that they thought the only problem with killing the party and starting a new one would be brand damage, not the fact that 400,000 <laughs> members would have just been kicked out. That was actually the good, they, they liked that. We're like, we get to kick out the 400,000 people, that'd be pretty good. We'd love to start a new Labour party. The only problem would be they might do attack ads saying that you bankrupted your own party, now you're going to bankrupt the country. But that tells you something about the flimsiness of these people's commitment to progressive or less left-wing values. Now, I happen to think, call, call me old-fashioned, is that there is something inherently good about participative democracies right, where you empower ordinary people to have a say in politics, whether that's at the ballot box, in their communities, or within a political party. I just think that's a good thing. And I think that that is a feature of any meaningful progressive organization that is worth its salt. All right. That's, that's just what I think. And that's what, you know, many of these, you know, moderate social Democrats would purport to believe in terms of the country as a whole, right? They, they see kind of European social democracy and go, oh yeah, no, that's nice. I like a bit of that. But actually what, what they all are, are, are incompetent technocrats, right? They're not even good technocrats. They're really incompetent ones. So while there is this kind of veneer of progressive values, you know, veneer of liberal and democratic values, actually what lurks underneath it is a desire to be a middle manager who rules with an iron fist. All right, that's it. Now, the problem is for Labour is that there was a period of time where this worked for them, new Labour, and that was because there was essentially a deal made with the devil, Rupert Murdoch, to allow them the media coverage, which could get them something like a decent hearing. Now, that wasn't a no strings bargain. That meant protections for capital, protections for Rupert Murdoch and people like him, and the financialization of our society and economy. It meant not embarking on really ambitious nationalization projects or building loads of council housing or curbing the power of billionaire 
elites. So that isn't just something you could simply do again. There isn't the leverage for Keir Starmer, I think, to make up for a disempowered membership and a bankrupt party with kind of striking a similar kind of deal. He simply doesn't have, have the clout. I also think it's it's really interesting to sort of see the sensibles, the people in suits, you know, Mr. I was Director of Public Prosecutions, reduced to looking at an empty bank account and going, maybe this is a good thing. I'm no political strategist hotshot, Michael, but I generally think if your party's going bankrupt, probably indicative of poor management rather than political genius. I want to go to one more quote in the article because it says, Starmer's aides insist they will have a good story to tell about new donors switching from the Tories and Liberal Democrats, but have not released names. Ash, do you think the secret weapon is going to be the property developers have switched from the Tories to the Labour Party and that's suddenly going to win back the red wall for the Labour Party? But we've heard this for nearly two years now, which is sure, the left might get pissed off. They might leave the party or be expelled, but the serious big money donors are coming back. Now, there is absolutely no evidence that that's the case. It didn't happen when Keir Starmer was enjoying much more favourable media coverage. And it's certainly not happening now that most people agree that he looks like a bag of stuffed ham. So w- when is this going to happen? It's, it's not under Starmer's leadership. We're going to move on from Keir Starmer. It's very well put. We're going to go to our breaking news story now. ITV has released a screenshot of an email from Martin Reynolds, that's Principal Private Secretary to the Prime Minister, sent to over 100 number 10 Downing Street staff in May 2020. Here is the image that ITV got hold of. And if you can't make out the text from that, the email reads as follows. Hi all, after what has been an incredibly busy period, it would be nice to make the most of the lovely weather and have some socially distant drinks in the number 10 garden this evening. Please join us from 6pm and bring your own booze. That's Martin Reynolds, so the, the private secretary to Boris Johnson. When asked earlier whether he and Carrie Simmons, or Carrie Johnson now, attended a Downing Street party organised by Martin Reynolds on the 20th of May, Johnson refused to answer. But now Sky News is reporting that Boris and Carrie did attend that party. We have no further details at the moment. But Ash, is this the big one? The party story has been a drip, 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 continuous one. This screenshot, the, the knowledge that, that Boris and Carrie were there, is this, is this it? The thing is, is that there have been a lot of so-called smoking guns. There was the picture of Boris Johnson hosting a Christmas quiz. There was also the picture of Boris Johnson in his garden attending another outdoor drinks party with Dominic Cummings in the image as well. None of these have proved fatal. I think, though, what they add up to is mood music of Boris Johnson's diminishing authority, not just in terms of the electorate, but particularly within the Conservative Party itself. Once upon a time, Boris Johnson could do what Donald Trump said that he would do, which is, you know, walk down Fifth Avenue, shoot someone in the head and it not matter. He wouldn't be held accountable. He's distinguished himself in every office that he has held with extreme incompetence 
or even callousness. It doesn't seem to have mattered that much. But right now, what you've seen is a bit of doubt creep in. You definitely see the circling of competitors from Liz Truss doing these prime ministerial looking photo shoots, Rishi Sunak having trying having attempted to establish a very separate brand from the Conservative Party for himself and also magically uh, going completely silent whenever there's troublesome news headlines. And I think that that sense of impunity is starting to wear off. I think the really decisive factors will be whether or not the Conservative Party think that Boris Johnson, for all of these accusations, will be able to still hold together that new electoral coalition established in 2019. But I think that if you know the sort of polling slump continues, or indeed the very damaging polling looking like Labour could regain seats in the red wall, if that continues as a trend, then you might see the Conservative Party take a gamble on a different leader. I think that's the real problem, rather than necessarily Boris Johnson resigning in disgrace. He hasn't done that so far in his career. I don't know where he'd start now. It is surprising he hasn't done that in career, isn't it? Many opportunities um, apparently, this is the party that Dominic Cummings thinks will be the smoking gun. He's been talking about a May the 20th party on his blog already. It could just be that this was the party he didn't attend. So it's the party he's happy for a big deal to be made out of because he, all, all the ones he attended weren't parties. And if he wasn't there, they suddenly were a party. I think it's sort of one of the running themes there. What I think will be interesting, what I'm kind of looking forward to is if there is a Tory leadership campaign, if one of the main themes in the battle between the candidates comes is who was at what party. And that's when all the pictures get released because you've got Team Rishi trying to source some pictures of Liz Truss at a, a garden party and Liz Truss trying to find a picture of Rishi Sunak at a barbecue. I think the whole thing could be kind of chaotic, kind of fun, really, as much as it is very frustrating for everyone, for all of us who live through lockdown, that these guys were partying at the same time. Let's go to Australia. Strange story. The Australian government caused an international media storm last week by revoking the visa of Novak Djokovic on the grounds that he is unvaccinated. The story has now taken another dramatic turn. The world number one tennis player is now free after an Australian judge has ruled the process was unfair. At an appeal court, lawyers for Djokovic laid out the sequence of events as understood by the tennis star, Djokovic applied to both Tennis Australia and Victoria's state government for a vaccine exemption on the grounds he has recently recovered from an infection. He was granted a visa and then taken by surprise when he was detained at Melbourne Airport. For their part, lawyers for the government reiterated their position that only the federal government have the authority to grant anyone access to the country. So uh, the, the two arguments there, which you are probably familiar with already. However, the most significant part of the case ended up being not what documents Djokovic did or didn't have when traveling to Australia, but rather his treatment once he arrived. After Djokovic was detained at Melbourne Airport, documents reveal he was interviewed by Border Force seven times between the hours of 12.21am and 7.20am. So it wasn't a pleasant night for the world, number one. The first of those interviews, which became increasingly Kafka-esque as we go through them. So in, in the first interview, Djokovic says, I am not vaccinated. I had COVID twice. I had COVID in June 2020 and I had COVID recently. I was tested positive by PCR on the 16th of December 2021. 
Djokovic was then able to provide documentation from the Victoria State Government and Tennis Australia approving his visa. Border Force agents then tell him not to turn on his phone. Difficult situation for the guy. And he is then left in isolation until 4am. That's when a Border Force agent arrives and says, previous infection with COVID-19 is not considered a medical contraindication for COVID-19 vaccination in Australia. So he's saying that the excuse that Tennis Australia and the Victoria state government let you get away with, the national government is not going to do the same. Djokovic is then served with a notice of intention to cancel his visa and is given 20 minutes to come up with further documents. Remember, this is at 4am. So this is told to Djokovic at 4am. He then says, My agent and I have been in constant communication with Tennis Australia and the Victorian state government. I applied. They approved. I just really don't know what else do you want me to say. I have nothing else. I arrived here because of these documents. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been allowed to come in. Djokovic understandably points out that 4am is not an ideal time to be seeking extra documentation, especially as I've already mentioned, the border force had banned him from turning on his phone. A short while later, the agent agrees. Djokovic is told he can have some rest so long as his solicitor provides more information by 8.30am. So it seems like, you know, they've seen sense. However, then, now it gets worse, at 6.07am, a new agent enters apparently to retract the extension. So he says, this is a conversation now between the agent and Djokovic, as I say, released in, in this court hearing. The agent says, you mentioned earlier that you didn't really have anything else you could add. And Djokovic says, but maybe I will have something in a few hours. The agent says, okay, if you don't respond, then a decision might be made based on the information that's at hand now. And Djokovic says, okay, so you want to make a decision now? The agent says, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, the decision can be made based on the information that we already have, which if you don't respond, it's not going to be. And Djokovic says, yeah, I know you're going to cancel my visa. It's obvious. About 90 minutes later, Djokovic's visa was cancelled and he was taken into custody. It's a pretty shoddy way to treat someone, which also reads as really chaotic. And the judge decided it wasn't good enough on the part of the Australian government. Djokovic could go free. After the judge announced his decision, Novak supporters were jubilant. And those scenes, that jubilation, later led to police pepper spraying them. Ash, I want your take on this. I mean, it's a really bizarre story. And it looks it looks at this point like this was a cock-up from the Australian government. Like on Friday, shall we talk through some of the weird views of, of Novak Djokovic? But it, it looks like, to be honest, he had the papers. The Australian government changed their mind, freaked out, and then behaved in a pretty shoddy way to the guy. This is one of those stories where I think that everyone's kind of an asshole, but the biggest asshole <laughs> of all is the Australian border force. Like, that's, that, that's what I think. You know, I do think that Novak Djokovic, like, has behaved irresponsibly in terms of his public platform and the messages which are being sent out about the vaccine. He's got a lot of power and he should be using that power to encourage people to keep themselves and their loved ones safe by taking the vaccine, getting boosted, doing all that kind of thing. However, him being, in my view, 
kind of a dick is no justification for how he was treated at the hands of the border force. And this might sound weird because he had such a dreadful experience of being interviewed repeatedly through the night, being told contradictory information, but he was one of the lucky ones. Because if you're somebody who isn't one of the most wealthy and famous sports people in the entire world, it's highly unlikely that you have a lawyer at your beck and call who can work outside office hours. It's highly unlikely that you can use that 20 minutes to conjure up extra information. And it definitely won't be the case that you will have an army of supporters, both online and in the streets, agitating for your release. One of the graphics put out by our very own Navarra Media today showed that the average for immigration detention in Australia is 700 days. There have been multiple cases where courts have ruled that children have been treated unfairly and that due process wasn't followed and that they were unfairly excluded from the country or their visas were rescinded. And they still haven't seen justice served. They still haven't been able to make their way to Australia and settle there in safety. So this is a glimpse into the reality of the Australian border system, which is one that many conservatives have said that they want to be able to replicate here in terms of either a points-based system or offshore detention or this level of stringency at the border itself. The result is an inhumane, Kafkaesque, and as you said, chaotic system, one which is so in love with its own logic of exclusion that it is incapable of enforcing its own rules fairly or taking into account the humanity of the people that they're dealing with. We're going to um, talk in a bit more detail about how this relates to Australia's asylum system in general. First, I just want to get out of the way a couple more sort of interesting nuggets which pertain specifically to Djokovic, because while, I mean, me and Ash both agree, the Australian government have come off worse here, Djokovic isn't in the clear. Sports journalist Ben Rothenberg has pointed out that Djokovic's positive COVID test didn't actually meet Tennis Australia's deadline for an exemption. So Ben Rothenberg tweets, a positive test on December 16th would have come too late for the Tennis Australia exemption process deadline as described to players. According to Tennis Australia documents, the deadline for applying for exemption had been nearly a week earlier, no later than December the 10th. So it's confusing as to why he was given that exemption. I suppose being world number one probably helps. The other reason the date of the PCR test seems odd is because of what Djokovic did the following day. So the day after he got that result. So you should be able to see here a photograph taken on the 17th of December. As I say, the day after Novak's positive PCR test. And you can see him here hanging out with maskless kids at an award ceremony. And we, we know that he knew he was positive then because here's his test result. And you can see there, date of sampling, 16th of December, date of results, sorry, December, date of results, 16th of December. So this is someone who, the reason he's able to go into Australia is because he tested positive for COVID on the 16th of December. And he knew that on the 16th of December. And we know that he was doing these photo shoots on the 17th. Very hard to make all of this add up. Possibly, I was thinking about this today, possibly he did a lateral flow test you know, two weeks earlier, and he had recovered from it. And we know that people test positive on a PCR for a while. But given his views on COVID more generally, I, I don't have that much confidence that he makes responsible decisions when it comes to issues such as this. 
Nigel Farage is not usually a defender of the rights of people struggling to cross borders. But for Novak Djokovic, he's made an exception. I'm here in Belgrade, outside the Parliament building. I've been a guest of the Djokovic family last night and today. And of course, overnight, the judges said the rules under which he got into Australia were the right ones. He was released from detention. Hooray, everybody thought. But the sting in the tail is that the Australian Immigration Minister has the right to override the court. So arbitrary power could be used over the rule of law. That was Nigel Farage supporting unelected judges in overturning a democratically elected government's decision about who can enter their country. It is the opposite of everything he's ever fought for throughout his entire career. He was also outraged that a judge's ruling could be questioned. That's at odds with his 2012 call to sack Judge Peter Bowers. Sack the judge. It doesn't take courage to burgle a home. It takes courage to do as his victim did and serve your country in Afghanistan. Sack the judge. Bowers had given... Uh, burglar a suspended sentence instead of sending him to prison. That's that's what Nigel Farage thought would be worth overriding the judiciary for and, and sacking a judge. The defence of judicial independence is also at odds with comments Farage made on the Supreme Court's 2016 decision that Parliament would need to vote on triggering, triggering sorry, Article 50. So do you think that when it comes to the Supreme Court, we shouldn't trust the Supreme Court not to be politically biased in this decision? Is that what you're saying? I, I, I'm, I'm afraid... Uh, that the, the reach of the European Union into the upper echelons of society in this country uh, makes it quite difficult for us to trust the judgments. And it's not just Farage's belief about the correct powers of the judiciary that are being tested in the Djokovic case. He is also presumably reconsidering his beliefs regarding immigration laws. In 2016, Farage tweeted, Clear now for sake of our national security, as well as for social cohesion, that we must leave the EU and have Australian-style immigration system. So the man who can now be standing in the Belgrade snow decrying the Australian immigration system once wanted it introduced in Britain. Changed your mind, Nigel. Being serious now, even if Farage's vault fast is pure opportunism, Djokovic's plight should be used to shine a spotlight on Australia's draconian immigration system. It's often praised in Britain. For that, we don't need to go much further than the hotel Djokovic was detained in. The Carlton in Melbourne currently houses 33 refugees and asylum seekers transferred from the notorious Nehru Island Detention Centre, mostly on medical grounds. Some have been in the hotel for more than two years, and many in detention, many have been in detention for as long as 10 years. Mohammed Joy from Bangladesh is one of them. Mr. Jokobik, will you speak out for us when you are released to get on with your life? Will you tell Will you tell the world how we have been at the mercy of Australia's coral immigration system for 10 years? We can no longer breathe inside this torture place, torture center. I was brought to Australia for medical treatment in 2020. Since then, I have not been able to get any good treatment without Panadol. Mr. Morrison government, why are you keeping us in this torture center for almost two years for no crime? What is the reason? And still we have 34 innocent people 
in this provision of torture center. <coughs> I would like to tell you the Australian government, 10 years is enough. Please, enough is enough. Is there anyone can tell us who can give back our 10 years, our young life? My only request to the government of this beautiful country was freedom and safety. Today we want justice from you for our 10 years. Please, we want support from you. We are all mentally ill. We are all physically ill because of this torture. A real victim of Australia's immigration system. Ash, Djokovic's situation has apparently awoken Farage to the horrors of a, a brutal immigration system, a, a brutal border force. Do you think the penny might be dropping for anyone else? I wish I could say that this was a politicising moment at large, but I don't think it is. When you see some of the comments which were made to the press by Djokovic's family, they talked about the conditions of the hotel he was in as if migrants were on the same level as cockroaches. They were saying it's full of immigrants, it's full of pests, it's horrible, the conditions are awful. Now, really, what that should have been is an opportunity to cast light on people who don't have the kind of access to media, to legal advice, people who are simply not as powerful or as wealthy as Novak Djokovic. And I think you said it right when you talked about the opportunism of Nigel Farage. This is a man who doesn't have any real beliefs or integrity, in my opinion. And the reason why he's so easily able to contradict his previously held positions is because right now he's a man without a cause. He used to be Mr. Brexit, but what is he now? And that's why I think he's trying to align himself with this kind of anti-authority, anti-vax, COVID skeptic lobby. It's simply because he sees an opportunity to amass a new set of followers. and That's all there is to it. Now, when it comes to the Australian government and the treatment of migrants, we've discussed this a few times on the show before, but for those who are unfamiliar, it is a particularly brutal, unjust and inefficient system. So you have people being detained on average for around two years, going up to 10 years. You have offshore detention where you have minors, asylum seekers, vulnerable people, victims of torture, victims of sexual abuse being held in almost prison camp conditions, being restricted from accessing necessary medical treatments. You have very high rates of self-harm, attempted suicide and suicide. You also have such a hardline anti-immigration policy that there have been reports of the Australian government coordinating with people traffickers in order to turn back the boats. There were news stories about these people traffickers being paid to turn back the boats containing asylum seekers. So it is a uniquely brutal and unjust system, and it's all about playing to essentially nativist nationalist politics. It is ugly, it is unjust, and there really, there really aren't words strong enough to condemn how Australia manages its borders. And it's the direction that much of the British political class wants to move this country in. Let's go to our next story. The Sun has published a previously unseen photograph of Peter Mandelson. It shows the former Blair advisor and disgraced former MP helping convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein to blow out the candle 
on his birthday cake. The photograph of the tete-a-tete in Epstein's £10 million Parisian mansion was apparently taken months after the sex predator was charged with procuring a minor for prostitution in 2006. Mandelson, recently rumoured to have advised Keir Starmer on his cabinet reshuffle, had a long-running relationship with Epstein. It was at the end of June 2008 that Epstein was sentenced to 18 months in jail. In a 2019 Channel 4 Dispatches programme titled The Prince and the Paedophile, an anonymous source close to Epstein revealed this. Now, you visited Epstein when he was in jail. Can you describe what conditions he was kept under? Well, firstly, it wasn't a jail. He was actually spending the night in his bed in the local police station. He was allowed out during the day to his office. Epstein was free to continue to conduct business as usual, and our source says he witnessed an intriguing phone call. While I was there, he received a call and said hello, Petey. And he chatted away, and Petey wanted to meet Jamie Dimon who was then the chairman of J.P. Morgan. And by the time he put, he said, yes, I'll sort it out, put the phone down, and Peter turned out to be none other than the um, Secretary of the Board of Trade, Peter Mandelson. I was astonished that a British cabinet minister at that time, probably the most powerful man other than the Prime Minister, was calling Geoffrey in jail to make an appointment or to seek an appointment with a very powerful banker in New York. In 2005, Peter Mandelson had been snapped casually shopping with Epstein in the US Virgin Islands. But I think it demonstrated that as far as Jeffrey was concerned, life was carrying on as if nothing had happened. And the phone call worked? Yeah, no, it, it, was, it was sorted out. Did you get a sense from him how well he knew Peter Mandelson? Well, clearly you don't call Peter Mandelson Peter if you're not a close friend. In a statement for this programme, lawyers for Lord Mandelson said... Our client has no recollection of a telephone conversation with Mr Epstein in January 2009, in which he allegedly requested that Mr Epstein set up a meeting with Jamie Dimon, chairman and CEO of JP Morgan. Our client would have no need whatsoever to make such a request. As business secretary, he met or talked on the phone to bank CEOs on a regular basis, including Mr Dimon. These contacts were all arranged through his government office. So you heard there, a denial of sorts from Mandelson's team. But that's not the only connection between Mandelson and, and Epstein, those pictures and that claim there. Um, Epstein, you'll probably know, kept an infamous little black book of all his rich and powerful contacts and connections. In it, we find Peter Mandelson. We can also see in there Tony Blair was in the little black book, as well as Alistair Campbell. Now, we should be careful here. It is quite possible that Peter Mandelson could have been singing happy birthday to Epstein while he faced charges of trying to sleep with a minor without knowing anything about those charges. And if Mandelson did ring Epstein in jail after his conviction on that charge, he might not even have known he was in jail. Although I suppose if he used the internet, he probably should have been able to guess. And appearing in the sex offenders contact book obviously doesn't imply any knowledge of complicity in any crime. But it does show how connected this creepy predator was with many people in the highest echelons of British society and politics. And also being in this situation doesn't imply knowledge, but to be frank, the dates we're looking at, you should have known. 
Well, like you said, there might be perfectly plausible reasons for Peter Mandelson either not knowing that Jeffrey Epstein had been charged or not knowing that he was making a phone call to Jeffrey Epstein while he was in jail. But either way, I think these are pretty serious questions to answer. Why was he maintaining a friendship with Jeffrey Epstein at all? What was the nature of that friendship? What what went on? Were there any suspicions that there was anything untoward happening? And what could possibly explain the continuing of that relationship, either in a friendly or professional capacity, after the charges were brought. Now, we know that Jeffrey Epstein was treated in a particularly preferential way by the police at this time. He wasn't treated as a usual suspect of sex offences. So it is plausible that he was able to continue on with a degree of normalcy in his life which meant that it could be effectively concealed from friends or business associates. But that is still a question for Peter Mandelson to answer. And I think that this is a problem which is much bigger than Peter Mandelson as an individual, which is when you look through the Epstein Little Black Book, you've got heads of state, you've got celebrities, you've got high-ranking journalists, you've got lawyers, you've got political strategists. And the key question is how and why was he able to inveigle himself with so many powerful people. There seems to be a really basic question, which has consistently gone unanswered, which is how did Jeffrey Epstein get so rich? How did he get so rich? Where did the money come from? Whose assets did he have access to? And did that play a role in his ability to cultivate relationships with extremely powerful people? None of the answers to that, I think, have been particularly satisfactory. And it's now something with Epstein dead that his associates are going to have to account for. Because I don't think that this man was simply uniquely charming. I don't think that it was the quality of his conversation that was attracting people into his orbit. I don't think that's why he was able to score himself invitations to royal weddings and have immensely powerful people come stay with him on his private island. I think that there was something else untoward. And even if the knowledge of his sex crimes weren't particularly prevalent, people just didn't know about it at that time. I think people perhaps had an idea that the source of his wealth wasn't entirely on the up and up. The more basic thing to say about this, we don't need any speculation or any extra knowledge, is that it is indicative of who the new Labour set hung out with. You know, because even before, as I say, it's it's, it's quite implausible to me that the the dates we're talking about, someone would, would not have known at least some of the things that Epstein had been up to. But hanging out with morally questionable very rich, very powerful people was just the name of the game when it came to New Labour's top dogs. You know, Tony Blair going on holiday with Berlusconi, getting all, exp- all expense paid trips to Sharm El Sheikh from the Mubarak-controlled Egyptian government. That was while he was prime minister, by the way. These were people who were in love with power and money. And they were really up for being friends with anyone with power and money, it seems. Tony Blair, apparently the godparent of one of Rupert Murdoch's children. So that whole new Labour set, I think it's really hard to argue they weren't completely corrupted by a lust, not just for money and power, but to be close to money and power. You can just see they just love to be moving in those circles. And those circles, lo and behold, often the people who move in them don't actually have a particularly admirable moral character. 
right? And and to have people who are leaders of a supposedly left wing party who are just constantly ga- like gallivanting around with people who have absolutely nothing to do whatsoever in their lives with with solidarity with public service. It's all just about self aggrandizement, self enrichment. You've got to ask, what is it that is intra- attracting you to these people? And over and over again, you see it with with Tony Blair, with Peter Mandelson, with that new Labour set that they do not have moral qualms when it comes to who are you going to work for, who are you going to work with. Obviously, Tony Blair advising the Kazakh dictator, what we talked about on on a previous show. And I, I just think this is indicative of that. So, so what, whatever Peter Mandelson did or did not know, that this relationship was so close that they were blowing out those birthday candles on that cake. I just think it, it tells us so much about New Labour and so much that we knew already, quite frankly, which is these people are not moral people. They're not moral people and they don't really respect public service. What they respect is power and they respect money and they want to be part of it. And they were part of it, you know? Congratulations. Well done to them. But that's why after they've left politics, people aren't being like, oh, we really appreciated when Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson were in charge. No, because we recognise that when they were in charge, what they just did is, is line their own pockets and use that position to increase their own influence, increase the, uh, the power of their own social networks. And no, we're not going to thank you for that, which, which is why, even though Tony Blair was in power for a really long time, he's incredibly unpopular, as is Peter Mandelson, and rightly so. Our next story is somewhat related. The Times reports that Alan Dershowitz lobbied President Trump to set Ghislaine Maxwell free. Dershowitz is the former Harvard Law professor who represented both Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein. And during the final days of Trump's presidency, Dershowitz is reported to have asked him to pardon Maxwell, now a convicted sex offender, following talks with her family. Trump is known to have socialised with Epstein and Maxwell on at least one occasion. Here he is with his future wife Melania and the gruesome pair at Mar-a-Lago in February 2000. And in July 2020, during a coronavirus briefing, the then president wished the recently incarcerated Ghislaine Maxwell well. Ghislaine Maxwell is in prison and so a lot of people want to know if she's going to turn in powerful people. And I know you've talked in the past about Prince Andrew and uh, you've criticized Bill Clinton's behavior. I'm wondering, uh, do you feel that she's going to turn in powerful men? How do you see that working out? I don't know. I haven't really been following her too much. I just wish her well, frankly. Uh, I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach. And I guess they lived in Palm Beach. Uh, But I wish her well. I wish her well. It seems that in his last days as president, while Maxwell was awaiting trial for sex trafficking underage girls, Trump too, took a sudden personal interest in Maxwell's fate. In his book, Landslide, titled The Final Days of the Trump Presidency, journalist Michael Wolff reports, one oh-shit moment involved Trump's sudden interest in Ghislaine Maxwell, the former girlfriend of Jeffrey Epstein, now facing years in prison over allegations of her role in the Epstein sex abuse scandal. Trump had tried hard to downplay his own long relationship with Epstein, Has she said anything about me? Trump openly wondered. Is she going to talk? Will she roll on anyone? And so that's from the book Landslide, The Final Days of the Trump Presidency. When asked, Dershowitz did not deny discussing Maxwell's case with Trump and Ian Maxwell, Ghislaine 
Gilen's brother admits that there was one phone call between Professor Dershowitz and a family member during which the generic issue of pardons was touched on. The generic issue of pardons. As far as I understand it, there was only one person at that time who was able to give out pardons. Um, unless we're talking about a completely different legal system in which Gilen was not entangled. And, and that was President Trump. Oh, and of course... You'll remember that we reported last week that Dershowitz, who has himself been accused of sexual assault by Virginia Giuffray, he of course denies that, appeared on a BBC News broadcast after Maxwell's conviction. There he was asked to analyse the case as though he were an impartial legal commentator. Here he is again, sickeningly attempting to discredit his accuser on the platform provided by a viewer-funded national broadcaster. And the other question is, who else will be charged? Because the testimony introduced evidence that other people were guilty and involved. Again, uh, Virginia Gouffray, she was alleged by the same women who the jury believed to have brought them to Jeffrey Epstein, knowing that they were underage, uh, getting undressed, having sex with Epstein in front of them when they were underage in order to encourage them also to have sex with Epstein. So I think the next question is, when will Virginia Gouffray be indicted and charged rather than her accusing people like Prince Andrew and me and uh, Ayoud Barak and George Mitchell and the dozens of other people who she's accused. So the next question is, who else will be charged for facilitating uh, Jeffrey Epstein's um, misconduct? Ash, we talked on a previous show I mean, in more detail about the BBC platforming Dershowitz there, but the fact that just a few days after that, it's been revealed that Dershowitz asked Donald Trump for a pardon for Ghislaine Maxwell. And this was a guy who was put on BBC as a neutral constitutional expert. I mean, the whole thing is, well, incredibly gross, but also beggars belief, right? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, Alan Dershowitz denies all accusations of sexual impropriety and having been involved with Virginia Giuffray. But even if we completely accept that denial, what's really interesting about Alan Dershowitz is if you look through his legal career, he really made a name for himself in defending very wealthy and very powerful people. So in the 1970s, he first distinguished himself by taking part in, you know, civil liberties cases regarding uh, pornography, political freedoms, right to assembly, so on and so forth. This big shift comes in the 1980s. He helps overturn this conviction of Klaus von Bülow, who was a very wealthy European socialite who was accused of killing his wife. He was part of the O.J. Simpson defense team. He defended Leona Helmsley, who was a very rich hotelier who was accused of not paying their taxes. He has defended Roman Polanski, who, of course, was charged with raping a 13-year-old in the 1970s, and also defended Mike Tyson, who was convicted of raping an 18-year-old. I believe this was in the 1990s. Now, obviously, everybody is fully entitled to legal counsel. And one of the things that you shouldn't do is say, this lawyer is a bad person, look who they defended. But it is very strange to me that this man who went from being counsel in these civil liberties cases, where you can see a real democratic case for taking part in these trials, shifted 
so suddenly towards, you know, defending the rich and powerful in cases of rape, spousal murder, and non-payment of taxes. Now, I'm not saying that the only explanation for that is, you know, to do with his own personal life. There is also the fact that these cases tended to be the highest profile. Many of Alan Dershowitz's peers in the legal community say that, look, the one thing that you don't want to do is get between Dershowitz and the camera. He's somebody who instinctively seeks out publicity, loves his time in the spotlight, and it was also made a very lucrative career for himself as a legal talking head, as an author, and as a commentator. But I think that this attempt to lobby Trump for a pardon of Ghislaine Maxwell, whatever way you want to look at it, whether you want to look at it as suspicious in terms of a fear that Ghislaine Maxwell would spill the beans on other people who were involved in the sexual exploitation of Epstein's victims, or you could look at it from the angle of here is somebody who has consistently tried to shield the rich and the powerful from accountability for their wrongdoing. Someone here has looked up an Australian charity. So Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, uh, which is asrc.org.au, might be one if you want to go to a, a website that's sort of supporting Australian asylum seekers. We are going to go straight to our final story. Prince Andrew is currently answering free charges of rape and sexual abuse brought by Virginia Giuffray in a US civil court. Of course, he denies all of those allegations. It has been widely reported that the Queen is funding his defence. The money, it said, comes not from the public purse, but from the Queen's private duchy of Lancaster estate. Not that it's very easy to make a distinction between public and private money when it comes to the royals. As far as I understand, they don't have many normal jobs. But while we await the verdict on the motion that Andrew brought last week to have Geoffrey's case dismissed, questions are being asked about how much longer the Queen would be prepared to bankroll him. Would she, for example, chip in for a settlement to keep the case out of public court? On that front, The Telegraph has reported that the Queen would be asked to contribute to the settlement were one to be agreed. Such a settlement would likely be in excess of £5 million. A condition for the royals to accept such a deal would be that it include a no-admission-of-fault or liability clause, as well as a non-disclosure agreement. So, in other words, a gagging order. Andrew is also reported to be selling his Verbier ski chalet, which the Queen also helped him to buy. Ash, um, this idea that, you know, it's not publicly funded money. So if the Queen is backing her son into, you know, to fund an out-of-court settlement to a woman accusing him of multiple rapes, which, of course, I should say, he denies. It's a terrible look, isn't it, for the royal family? There's no such thing as private income when it comes to the monarchy. Everything they have is by virtue of their public position, and that includes the private ownership of land and estate and the ability to monetize that land and those estates. They simply wouldn't have them if it wasn't for the fact that they have this public constitutional role. So leaving that aside for a second, uh, what does this mean for the Queen? Well, in an age of republics, one of the ways in which the monarchy has been able to justify its continued existence in this country has been by appealing to the Queen's personal morality. So this is whether you are reading the dross pumped out by royal correspondence or whether you're watching the crown, 
what you get the sense of is a woman who is deeply motivated by a sense of public service, of duty, of responsibility, and somebody who is self-sacrificing in the interests of all those things. Now, if you're paying for the legal defense for your son who is accused of sexual exploitation of a trafficked minor, and if you're pitching in for the settlement of such a case, even if it contains all sorts of non-liability clauses and all the rest of it, in terms of the court of public opinion, I do think that that does have a tarnishing impact. Now, for me, this isn't just about a snafu of PR. I think what this does is pull the veil back on what the monarchy really is. It is a group of people who for generations have been told that they are superior to everybody else because of their bloodline and have had that self-perception reinforced by untold wealth and immense power. Now, that is a set of circumstances which are inherently corrupting. I don't think it is possible for somebody to maintain their own moral compass considering those are the forces at play in their own lives. And you see a kind of disenchantment of the queen, which is it's harder to maintain this idea of this uniquely moral woman if she is a participant in a uniquely immoral act, which is shielding somebody who has been accused of sexual exploitation of a minor. Let's wrap up there. Thanks, Ash, for spending a a longer show with me today. Thank you all for watching at home, for hanging out with us as well this evening. If you want to support us, you can go to navaramedia.com forward slash support. It really does help. All of our regular donors are what makes this possible. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7 p.m. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.